right, I think we're pretty close to being done. Um, this is kind of a strange lectionary passage. I kind of wrestled with this for a few days this week, and I was like, what in the world is this? Because uh, it's a strange five verses to just, like, strip out from Matthew chapter 18. It almost reads like this weird sort of, like, legal document, and... <laughs> It's actually been used that way throughout church history. This, th like these five verses, have been abused by the church to uh, give license for the church to excommunicate people from the church. I don't know if you've ever uh, heard or, or read history about people being excommunicated from the church, uh, but people were thrown out of the church uh, based on whatever criteria the church had during a particular period in history, and they would use these verses oftentimes as justification for you know, being able to excommunicate anybody they just didn't like. So um, it's strange, though, because it, it ripped out of the context of 18, Matthew chapter 18. Uh, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. So we're going to read some of the verses before, a couple of the verses after, and um, we'll, we'll look at it differently. Hopefully it, it challenges you this morning, because uh, it definitely did for me. Um, I would also argue that verse 20 is probably one of the most uh, misquoted verses in the Gospels. Like, people often use it in prayer, like, when two or more are gathered, uh, there I will be. Like, has anybody else, like, ever heard that? Like, people quote that? I actually got an email this week asking me for money, and they used that verse, and, and I was like, I don't get that, but, um, so that verse is just, like, stripped out of Matthew 18 all the time. So, um, anyways, we won't, I won't air my grievances with people's misquoting the Bible this morning, but, uh, let's look at, at verses 12, 13, and 14, and I'm just going to read this. This is what Jesus says right before um, he goes into this little legal thing. He says, look at it this way. If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off, doesn't he leave the 99 and go after the one? And if he finds it, doesn't he make far more over it than the 99 who stay put? Your father in heaven feels the same way. He doesn't want to lose even one of the simple believers. Uh, what Jesus is talking about generally in Matthew 18 is uh, the self-righteousness of the disciples. Matthew 18 opens up and the disciples, who tend to miss the point a lot of times with Jesus, and hopefully that get, comforts us because I think we miss the point a lot, they say, who is the greatest? Who, who is the highest ranked among us? And Jesus continues to try to teach the disciples, okay, like stop, all right, I, I, Jesus has more patience than I would. He's, so he, he tells a story, right? He, he tells these stories that you can't, you can't rank people in God's kingdom. The way you guys are thinking is, is just off kilter a little bit from how God's kingdom works that accepts everyone. So Jesus tells, uh, you know, he, a child comes up and he says, we have to be like this child, you know, some, somebody that hasn't accomplished anything, right? That's just, that just is there. And yet these disciples feel like, you know, well, we follow Jesus, you know, so we should, we should get some credit for following, right, the Messiah somewhat. Um, but the disciples are numbers-based, and we're also fairly numbers-based. Like, we, we tend to rank people. Um, we tend to say some people have more value than other people based on a lot of different criteria, and that's oftentimes what the culture sort of decides. So we live in the United States, and our culture has things that we value. I mean, just even take uh, the DACA thing, for instance. I mean, we're saying that some people have inherent value and they should stay in the country, and that 800,000 people that do provide 
actual value and have lived here most of their entire lives, that somehow um, they don't fit into this system, so, or they're somehow lower than. So I mean, we do this all the time. I mean, does anybody know who the richest person in the world is? The richest, richest man in the world? Who? No, no, it's, uh, it's actually Bill Gates. Bill Gates is uh, the richest man in the world, at least as of last year. Um, you know, co-founder of, of Microsoft. He's worth $86 billion, uh, just a little bit. And um, he's held the number one spot as the richest person for the last four years and 18 of the last 23 years. 18 of the last 24 years. You know, our magazines have uh, lists uh, ranking the hottest celebrities, right? Who's bought one of these? Yes. Just me? I'm the only one that's bought those magazines? Um, we track the wealthiest people. We applaud, uh, you know, the Fortune 500 companies. We do this all the time. We rank things. And the disciples are just saying, who's, who's the best, right? It's a simple question. Who's, who's the highest? Um, are we ranked higher? And Jesus tells this weird story about 100 sheep and... Jesus loses one, or the shepherd in this story loses one, and the shepherd goes after the one, something that no shepherd would ever do. It's like such, it would be such a silly, appalling story to the, you know, the disciples that were listening to it. Like, you would never just go after one sheep and leave your 99. It's just not what you would do. It's silly. But Jesus is trying to say the kingdom of God is that ridiculous. It is that flipped upside down that it doesn't make any sense. There are no rankings because it is so absurd that it just doesn't work that way. We just don't rank things. So when Jesus gives uh, this small, what seems like a small section of practical advice, which the church and many others have taken as like really literal practical advice, you should go and this, you should do this, you should talk to this person and you should bring them before the church and whatever, really is not the point at all of this story. I, I can, I, this is just, my interpretation that I'm going to uh, argue this morning is that Jesus in these five verses is being entirely ironic. He's actually not saying to, uh, he's not saying to not reconcile, but he's not prescribing what every person should do, okay? Um, and one of the, the clues to, I think, um, Jesus being ironic, which is actually, um, I tricked you this morning because I didn't give the translation of the Bible that gives the little clue into this, which is in verse 17. Verse 17, I think, I'm not sure if I have it up there. Um, verse 17, yes, there it is. Okay, so verse 17, if the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen, even to the church, let such one be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. See, this is what gives churches license to throw people out, right? Gentiles and tax collectors who were they? Does anybody know? Yeah, they were kind of the bad guys, right? They were on the margins. They were on the outside. Gentiles, obviously, um, you know, were, you know, ethnically not allowed to receive God's favor because they weren't a part of the Israelite uh, and Jewish religion. And tax collectors were kind of like traders. They were colluding with Rome. They would uh, take money from people and collect tax, and then they would profit off of it. So they were seen as outsiders for being, for what they did. Um, and so they were outcasts, especially in Judaism at the time, they were outcasts. So people listen to this and they say, well, that means you should cast them out because they're outcasts. That makes a lot of sense. But who were Jesus' friends? Gentiles and tax collectors. So what actually Jesus is saying here, he's flipping this whole thing. He says, like, if somebody refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if 
an offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such you be like my best friend. It, it flips the entire narrative that uh, God's forgiveness can't be calculated at all. And even at the end of the day, God's grace is so unlimited over and over and over that even if somebody refuses, let them be like a friend. How ridiculous is that? It's very ridiculous. Um, the disciples would love to be ranked on their merit. They did a lot of good things. And I think sometimes as Christians, we can even kind of do the same thing, right? Oh, well, we know the right people to love. We're, very, we're a very inclusive bunch. Look at all the things we do. We follow Jesus in this way and that way. And we can kind of be proud in the same way that the disciples were proud for following Jesus um, in, during their lifetimes. They would love to be ranked on their merit. But Jesus flips, once again, their expectations and says that you can't do anything to win God's favor. You can't. Um, so become like a little child. Um, in other words, God acts, loves, and moves to grace before we could possibly do anything. So living life to the fullest is a phrase that I, I say all the time here. Um, must then in that framework be grounded in our capacity to be found, to see ourselves as the lost sheep, and to simply realize we can't do anything, but we're actually the ones being found over and over again. We are the lost sheep that God seeks out, and if we are the lost sheep, then we have no reasons to judge, to rank, to save, to keep track, to count. Um, we would love to think that we are better or more aligned um, with the way of Jesus, like the disciples. Um, but we must remember that we, too, are like lost sheep. So this is good news, I, I argue. Um, God's love and grace is all we have. It's all we have. And it's from that that we are able to actually receive good news and to, to be transformed. Um, I've had a really difficult time lately um, finding myself in really challenging situations of figuring out how to forgive and to navigate a really complicated situation in which I feel like um, I am the one that is really having a hard time trying to figure out how to forgive over and over and over and over. And where, what do I do with that situation um, where I feel kind of helpless? Um, and I think it goes back to, you know, sometimes the Bible is kind of bad for practical advice. It, it just is. It, sometimes it just doesn't offer the practical advice that we want, but it offers the hope. It offers the grace. It's where we um, are loved at our innermost place, and the hope is that from that place of love and grace, of being found over and over again, that we, we find deep within us the well of love to simply live and to follow Jesus in the best way we know how. Like the disciples, we're going to fall over and over again. We're going to miss the point. We're going to find ourselves judging and ranking. Um, but a passage like this and what Jesus continues to call us back to is the grace that we have received in him, the grace that we have found in him, in that at the end of the day, it's ultimately not our job to, to judge and rank and decide who gets forgiveness and who doesn't get forgiveness and when we should do it and when we shouldn't do it and how many times should we go. And that's why I think the next two verses— uh, after 20 are really important. So then Peter does what I would do, right? Peter goes, he gets up the nerve, and he asks, Master, Jesus, you know, how many times do I forgive a brother or sister who hurts me? Seven? Question mark? Seven? He, like, thinks, oh, yeah, seven's a good number, right? Seven. 
I can forgive somebody seven times. And Jesus replies, seven, hardly. Try 70 times seven, which is his way of saying checkmate. You know, you think that you should forgive someone seven times. Well, seven, you know, seven, uh, 70 times seven is just his way of saying, you know, it's unlimited. You know, you don't get to make that call. You get to receive grace. You get to receive love and navigate your life through that grace and love that you have received and nothing more. Um, I want to close today with a quote from uh, a guy named Robert Capon. And he's, um, he, he's writing a little bit uh, on this parable uh, that comes after. We'll read it next week. And he says this. I think it's, I think it's beautiful. Um, in heaven, there are only forgiven sinners. There are no good guys, no upright, no successful, successful types who, by the dent of their own integrity, have accepted into the great country club in the sky. There are only failures, only those who accepted their deaths in their sins and who have been raised up by the king who himself died that they might live. But in hell, too, there are only forgiven sinners. Jesus on the cross does not sort out certain exceptionally recalcitrant parties and cut them off from the pardon that was his death. He forgiven in the, he forgiven the badness, even the mo- the, even the worst of us willy-nilly, and he never takes back that forgiveness, never, not even from the bottomless pit. So this morning, may we feel that grace, may we experience that grace, may we realize that it's ultimately not our place to rank, to cast judgment, or um, to see ourselves in some sort of superior light based on something that we've done in the past, but may we see ourselves as the lost sheep being found over and over. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you find us um, daily, that you find us um, in our moments when we're yelling at people in traffic, that you find us in our moments where we um, are at the end of our rope asking, why are we even doing this? Why am I even here? Why should I even go on? Um, That it's in those moments that you find us. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand to your feet.
Just black.